1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as as you know how how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This text that Brad just read teaches us why we need to be bold, and it teaches us where boldness comes from, and it teaches us what has to happen inside if we are going to be bold people. And if there's a longing inside of you this morning to be an influence in the world for Christ and for His kingdom, and if there's a longing inside of you to lead a life that is authentic and real rather than phony, then I think the answers to these three questions are going to sound very, very relevant to you, even though they're 2,000 years old. Because God has never changed and human nature has never changed. And so let me take you one at a time through these three questions. Why we ought to be bold and where boldness comes from and what has to happen inside for you to be bold. Number one, why should you care about being bold? The answer that this text gives is... Boldness keeps your life from being in vain. Boldness will keep your life, your ministry, your family from being lived in vain. It will keep you from coming to the end of your life and looking back and saying, nothing happened. It was insignificant. I didn't make a ripple. Boldness will prevent you from that awful confession at the end of your life. I'll show you where I get this now. Verse 1 and 2 and the connection between. Paul has come to Thessalonica from Philippi. He had been mistreated in Philippi. He comes now. He has trouble in 
Thessalonica as well, and he says, You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was significant. It caused a ripple. Something happened. It will go down in history. It will have effects in eternity. It was not in vain. Now, why not? But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the Gospel of God amid much opposition. So his life in Thessalonica had not been in vain, even though it was relatively short, maybe three weeks. And the reason is because he had courage in his God to speak the Gospel. So what we learn, I think, in these first two verses is that if we don't want our ministry, our life, our family, our job to be in vain, we need to have what Paul had, namely this boldness that frees us to take some risks to open our mouths and say significant things about eternity and reality and God and what is life all about anyway instead of just kind of flowing like a jellyfish with the nonsense that's usually spoken about everywhere. We need to interject salt and light with boldness so that it makes a difference. And the day was not a zero. You didn't just float through it and come to the end and say, what was the point of that day? Or life? Or job? Now, let me try to press this home a little bit by looking at something that really surprised me in this text in the way Paul put it together. Verse 1 here uh, begins by saying that his ministry in Thessalonica was not in vain. Then you know what I would have expected? I would have expected that the next verses would have illustrated that. If I had written it, I would have said, when we came to you, our, our work, our life, our ministry was not in vain, for you turned from idols and you stopped uh, being vain and you stopped stealing and you stopped killing and you stopped hating and you started trusting Jesus and you started being kind to each other and you started loving your enemies and you started worshiping the true God. That's why my ministry was not in vain. And for ten verses, from two to eleven, he doesn't say one word about what happened in uh, that city as far as they are concerned. For ten verses, he does something which to me, as I read it, was totally unexpected. Namely, he talked about himself. Let me just illustrate. He talks about himself. He, he says ten things about himself. Verse 2, at the beginning, we suffered and were mistreated in Philippi. Two, at the end, we had boldness to speak. Three, our exhortation doesn't come from error and deceit. Four, uh, we've been approved by God. End of verse 4, we speak to please God. Five and six, we don't flatter or covet. Seven and eight. We became gentle like a nurse. Nine, we worked night and day. Ten, we were devout and upright. Eleven, we encouraged you like a father. You say, what's going on here? What? You just said that when you came to, to Thessalonica, your work, your life was not in vain. It had effect on them. They were changed. And then you start talking about yourself. I don't get it. That was my first impression as I read this. I think he's doing two things. 
Number one, he is defending himself against slander in Thessalonica. If you go back and read in the book of Acts, chapter 17, as he comes into Thessalonica, there's this great upheaval. The Jews become jealous in the synagogues. There's a mob gathered. They take some of the the new believers and take them before the court. Paul escapes by the skin of his teeth at night to Berea. And so there's this huge opposition in Thessalonica to the gospel. And now he's gone. If you read chapter 3, he's anxious that their faith would hang on in the midst of affliction. And part of that affliction is people are saying, this rascal... Paul, who was here for three weeks, wanted your money. He wanted notches in his gun. Praise from men. He was a flatterer. He mooched off of you. He was a deceiver and spoke out of guile. And therefore, what you're experiencing now is as phony as he was, and your faith is unreal, and this God talk and this Christ talk is all wrong. Now, that's what Paul has heard. And that's what we hear behind these ten verses. The first thing he's doing is defending his ministry by saying, six times in these ten verses, he says, you know, you know, you know, you are witnesses, you recall... That's, that's the voice of a defender in a courtroom to a, a jury or to a, a group of people who know the facts and they're about to be deceived and forget the facts. You know I didn't act like that. You know I worked all night. You know I didn't flatter. You know I didn't want your money. You know I spoke with boldness. You know I risked my life. They're lying. That's the first thing that explains this. The second thing that explains this is that He's really not defending himself. He's defending their faith. Because if the accusers succeed in indicting Paul and showing that he and his ministry are inauthentic, their faith is inauthentic. And that's Paul's real concern. And that's the logic in verses 1 and 2. I came to you and I did not come in vain. You got changed. You can go back and read chapter 1 about how they became strong and they started taking risks and they were willing to become like Paul and suffer in the midst of trial. And then he defends himself so as to show that that effect that he had in Thessalonica is real because he's real and his gospel is real and all the risks that he took and the boldness that he had was not manipulation for money and praise. I think that's the logic of this paragraph. And therefore, I conclude my answer to question number one. If you want your life like Paul's not to be in vain, not to be a zero, not to be insignificant, then you need to be bold. You need to be bold like Paul. Question number two. Where did it come from? Where did this boldness come from? The answer is very clear in verse 2. After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness 
in our God. There it is. That's the answer. In our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. We had boldness in our God. You remember what happened up in Philippi? He came into Philippi, had a little prayer meeting. Lydia was converted. The next day, riding the high of that beginning, new church in Lydia's house, he walks through and there's this demon-possessed girl coming around behind him. These people speak in the voice of the Most High God and she was annoying to them. She was a Zeus-sayer, earning money for her, her owners. And Paul turns around, boom, casts the demon out and she's of no use to them anymore. The slave has become a liability and the owners of this slave girl are so angry, they grab Paul, it says, and drag them into the market and accuse them publicly of sedition against Rome and the ways of the Romans, and they're thrown in jail overnight, earthquake, release, out of town. So Paul's ministry in Philippi had been under the cloud of this, this uh, mob reaction and the prison, and now he comes to Thessalonica, and it's much worse. The mob reaction in Thessalonica, and I'll tell you, mobs are scary things. They are absolutely irrational totally out of control, and there was a mob. Jason and his house were threatened. Paul had to get out by night. That whole three weeks or so, however long he was there, was ministering under that kind of pressure. Just picture yourself as though if you wondered when you walked out of here whether there would be people ready to heave big bricks and stones at you. How would life be to be ministering under that kind of, of pressure? And he says, that's the way it was, and I had boldness in my God. His life was hid in God. He trusted his God. He hoped in God. The glory of God was more desirable to Paul than all the, 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 the things that the world could offer. I consider that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us, Paul said. God was so real, so powerful, so wise, so able to work everything together for Paul's good that he did not fear that he'd be ever separated from the love of God. What can separate me from the love of God? Nothing. Not death or life, things to come or things present or powers or angels or principalities or height or depth or anything would able, be able to separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, in God, he had... Boldness. And that's where boldness comes from all the time. Every martyr has had boldness in God. Martin Luther tells the story of two young virgins named Agnes and Agatha from the middle of the third century who were led away to their execution confident and joyful. Here's what Luther says. They felt, as they said aloud, as if they were going to a wedding. Truly, my dear daughter, if to you going to prison and being beheaded is like going to a dance, you must in truth have a heart and mind and courage different from those of the world. Such courage, assuredly, is the work of the Holy Spirit. They had their courage in God. Nowhere else. Not in any human turn of affairs. 
not in any development of circumstances. Their hope was in one thing. It was like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.9, we were so utterly, unbearably, unspeakably crushed that we despaired of life itself. That was to show us that we should not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In other words, God brings you right up to the point of death and sometimes lets you fall right over the brink at the gallows so that you will not get your boldness from anything this world can offer, but only from the God who raises the dead. Hugh McHale was a Scots covenanter. I don't know if you know the stories of the covenanters in Scotland in the 1660s. It was a bloody decade where to be a Presbyterian was not popular because it seemed like sedition against the Anglican and Catholic moves in England and in Britain generally. And Hugh McHale was one of those and he was taken and arrested for sedition and they tortured him first with what they called the boot. They put his right leg into a square iron sheath with a slight face in the front and then put an iron wedge down in the front against his knee that protruded up out of the top of the wedge. And then they asked him where the rest of his band was. And if he said no, the executioner took a mallet and hit the wedge. Whap! Down into his knee. And it gets wider and wider. Eleven times before he passed out. And his leg was shattered and he's gone. I don't know if you've ever had a knee injury or hit your kneecap straight on. He said before he was a goner, I protest solemnly in the sight of God. That's the word I underline. I can say no more, though all the joints of my body were in as great anguish as my leg. Well, he wouldn't need his leg because they were going to kill him anyway. And his final words before his execution some weeks later became very famous in Scotland and were used on the mouth of numerous martyrs in those days. Go like this. And what they illustrate is boldness in God. He said at the end, Now I leave off to speak any more to creatures and turn my speech to Thee, O Lord. Now I begin my intercourse with God which shall never be broken off. Farewell, father and mother, friends and relations. Farewell, the world and all delights. Farewell, meat and drink. Farewell, sun and moon and stars. Welcome, God and Father, welcome, sweet Lord Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Welcome, blessed Spirit of grace, God of all consolation. Welcome, glory. Welcome, eternal life. Welcome, death. Hugh McHale's life was not lived in vain. Hugh McHale's death was not died in vain because he had boldness in his God. 
One last question. What needs to happen in you from God so that you can be this way? Bold. Now, there's a lot of answers to that question. As I got to this point in my preparation, I had five ideas to develop here, and I've, I've cut it to two. So, you go ahead and meditate on that text this afternoon and see if you can find the others. But these are the two that I think Paul stresses in these verses. There are two main obstacles, as I read this text to Paul's boldness, that have been overcome. One is the love of human acceptance and praise. The craving to be accepted. The craving to be liked. The craving to escape criticism. The craving to receive applause. It is profoundly deep in the human heart. And a great enemy of boldness. That's number one. Number two is similar It is the craving and the need for the comforts and securities that money can buy. A great hindrance and obstacle to boldness is that if we say a thing or do a thing like Hugh McHale or Agnes, it could take away our comfort. It could take away our security. Not to mention result in criticism. Now, Paul had been freed from these things. I'll show you. First of all, he had been freed from the addiction to human acceptance and praise. Verse 4 at the end. We speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. That's the only ground of boldness that would have freed him. Had he needed to please men, he would not have functioned amid mobs. Verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you, as Christians, or from others. Paul was freed from the need to please people. He was freed from the need to get approval from believers or from outsiders. He was a free man. And therefore, he was not prone to use flattery. Verse 5. We never came with flattering speech. What is flattery for? Flattery is to help people praise you. Genuine, authentic compliments are not designed to get you attention. Flattery is. And so, if you're free from the need to get human praise and the need to be affirmed all the time and the need to be accepted, if you're free from that, you don't need a flatter. And you can say it like it is. The second freedom he had was the freedom from the love of money and the securities that it could buy. Verse 5, again, beginning. We never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed or covetousness. He wasn't after their money. It was unlike many ministries today. 
He did care about their money. And to drive it home and prove it and show that he guarded his financial freedom more than almost anything, it says in verse 9, you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel. He meant to be free. Now, he did not have to do that. In fact, he says, those who live by the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But he wasn't going to do it. Because he was absolutely sold out to give nobody a stumbling block and to give him no hook into any rich listener and say, well, I better not offend that person because then I won't get my food. He was a free man, free from praise and free from money, free from approval and free from security, ready to die. To die was gain. Ah, that's what's got to happen in here to be born. So these two things, free from money, free from praise. Where do you get it? Verse 4, just as we have been approved by God, so we speak, not pleasing men, but God. Now that verse is the pointer for the connection between God as the source of boldness, the answer to our second question, and freedom from human praise and money security in answer to our third question. And the connection is God gives me all the praise and all the approval and all the acceptance and all the security and all the comfort I need. The God thing. We need boldness so that our lives won't be empty, won't be in vain. And our boldness comes from a God who freely, in Jesus Christ, justifies the ungodly, accepts them by faith, approves of them in Christ, rejoices over them, and even, it says, Romans 2, praises. Well done. Enter into the joy of your master. If you've got that, if you believe in that, if you feed off of that and live off of that, what can men do? One thing, Father, one thing we need. We need to see You. We need to see You, Father. Because if You were to reveal Yourself to us and Your Son to us in Your glory, in Your beauty, in Your incredible love to us, in Your approval over us in Christ, if we would see this, we'd be free. And we'd be bold and our lives would not be in vain. So, Lord, reveal to us Yourself, I pray. 
That's what we need more than anything. We need to see You and we need Your grace abounding to us so that our eyes are open to Your all-sufficiency and we are freed from the praise of men, the securities of money, and made bold that our lives might not be in vain. And all the people said, Amen.